All right, if you want to join me in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, as we continue our journey through the book of Deuteronomy, we finished up the 14th chapter last time, and we'll pick up here in the 15th chapter this evening. And, you know, again, the book of Deuteronomy is just this restating, or the name itself, meaning second law, was basically God now through Moses at this point. Uh, in a secondary way on the border of the promised land, just reiterating a lot of what has already been stated and we've learned together in our study through previous books in the Old Testament, Exodus and Leviticus and uh, Numbers, these books that have told us things about the Mosaic law and God's intention for how the people were to worship. And uh, now here in the Deuteronomy book, we basically have sort of the summarization of those very things kind of put together in a summarized form being restated one more time for the second generation or this younger generation now the older generation has died off through the wandering in the wilderness as they're about to go into the land this younger generation it's as if God is rehearsing now and restating these things in a succinct form one more time to make sure they're adequately prepared so that they enter into the land fully equipped with the knowledge and the revelation and the understanding that they need and you know as I continue to study through this book again and as we read through it again together it just it continues to impress upon my heart the reality of how greatly concerned God really is that we understand what he wants to know about him uh, th that God wants us to understand his will his ways to understand who he is uh, what he desires what he does not desire what he prefers what he does not prefer what is sin and what is righteousness in his sight and the very fact that God would take an entire book of the Bible this book of Deuteronomy and basically in many ways uh, be somewhat repetitious certainly in a summarized form it's more succinct there's not every little detail but to really kind of in some ways take information and what has already been said by God in the past three books and to now restate those same things again it's almost as if you sense at the heart of God is I really want to make sure that you got this and before we move on I want to make sure that you understand and I don't know about you but that's something to me that makes me really appreciate God and the heart of God that God cares that people actually understand his word that God cares that people actually understand his will and his ways, that God wants to reveal himself. I think sometimes it's very unfortunate that people almost have this perception uh, that God really is so uh, mysterious and detached in ways that you know it, we're unable to know or to understand the things of God or that somehow God does not want us to understand as just common people things about him or his word when the reality is is God has given his word to be understood and the book of Deuteronomy is just another re-indication that God says, look, I'm going to stop one more time and I'm going to re-say all these things again. I'm going to simplify it, but I want to make sure that you got it. I want to make sure that you understand. And it's just a beautiful thing to see that God cares about simplicity and clarity and that God is a God of revelation. He wants us to know him and to know his will and his ways. And it really shows us as well that God is a heart, I think, for the younger generation. Because this is the younger generation. And this is basically the book of Deuteronomy. You can say it's, it's somewhat uh, youth ministry. It's children's ministry. Because it's God now working with the younger generation. 
and making sure that they understand and are well equipped spiritually. And the book of Deuteronomy, in essence, is sort of a series of sermons, a series of youth, quote unquote, sermons, if you would, that God is giving now to the younger generation to make sure they understand the same things that their parents did as they take the baton and now are the ones who will enter into the promised land as we'll see when we get to the next book, the book of Joshua. So chapter 15 begins now to give to us more information to reacquaint them and he begins in the 15th chapter now to talk about what we've looked at before referred to as the sabbatic year. Look with me there in verse 1. It says at the end of every seven years... You shall grant a release of debts or a remission or cancellation of debts or obligations. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall, look what it says, verse 3, give up your claim to what is owed you by your brother. So here we see, we've already talked about this in, in prior sections, what we often refer to as the sabbatic year. This system that God put into play with Israel where there was this pattern of six and one, six years, they would work the land, they would plant their crops, they would harvest the fields, they would reap uh, the, the benefit of what the land produced for six years. But then in the seventh year, God asked that they would let the land rest and lie fallow. And that in that seventh year, they would just trust the Lord. Anything that the land produced from just prior uh, planting and sowing and reaping, they could eat, but they weren't to work the land. They were to let the land rest. It was an opportunity for the land to be replenished, number one, which actually works out very well for soil conservation, that the land wasn't overworked, which caused it to be more fruitful and productive. And it also was a way really for them to exercise trust in God. Uh, that God would adequately care for them. And in that sixth year, would even many times give them a bumper crop that would carry them over to the eighth year, if you would, where they would then begin to work the land. So it was an occasion where they would work the land for six years and trust God in that seventh year to provide for them before they went back to work. And I don't know about you. I don't think I'd complain if you work six years and get a year vacation. That's not bad. Not a lot of bad policy, quite frankly, to just trust God and, you know, work for six years. Then every seventh year, you just get an entire year of vacation and, and get to rest and not have to work the land. So God had instituted this with the land. And now we begin to see something else that was a part of that, letting the land rest every seven years. Another part of that was in the seventh year. We see there in verse one, every seven years also was to be a time of releasing of debts or canceling obligations that may have existed among the congregation of Israel, among the Jews. And what would happen, you see there in verse two, is uh, that if there was a creditor who had, in a sense, lent out any Anything to a neighboring Israelite, to another citizen among the Israelite people, whether that was because of a financial problem, maybe some poor decisions and somebody got themselves backwards or in some trouble financially, certainly that could be a way you may need to borrow some money or uh, to go to a creditor to get some financial assistance. 
it could just be quite frankly as well that maybe you just really had a, a bad year a crop failure uh, or things didn't produce as well and so because of that now you find yourself in a situation where you have nothing to uh, to pay your debts and so you have to make some sort of an arrangement with the person who lent to you because of uh, a financial strain to, in order to keep a roof over your family's head and food provided but if these situations would arise where there was the borrowing and the the lending, if you would, kind of process, and there was a creditor and someone who had borrowed from them, in the seventh year, in the same way, the land would rest and be replenished and got a release from its, in a sense, obligation to be worked. God also instituted, you can see here, that it was a time in the seventh year where people were to be released from any debts that had been created for whatever the reason of that debt was. Now, again... It was something that happened every seven years because if it was a genuine situation where somebody had a tragedy and fell into debt, well, it was a gracious way to release them. If somebody had made some poor choices, which is sometimes the cause of why some people do get into debt, maybe they've made some bad decisions and created their own debt in a sense, uh, God didn't want to completely waive the opportunity for somebody to have to take responsibility for that and to, to have to, if you would, sort of, you know, work some of that off and have to kind of pay some of their dues for a six-year process to to get themselves back out of the hole they got themselves in so there was a a balance in this but again this was not to encourage irresponsible living or irresponsible spending or management where you kind of just you know well let's run up the card because in the seventh year then it all gets canceled anyway i mean that was not the intention of this year where people were supposed to manipulate the system this was given we see as we look at this principle that was instituted for the people as a way to alleviate the burden of people who had either a made mistakes as people all do at times or to alleviate the burden if somebody fell into hard times uh, and was in financial distress that it would not completely ruin them as an individual or ruin a household where somebody fell into a complete cycle of poverty that they could not get out of so therefore, the Lord said, every seven years, you are to release from debts. I love verse two, what he says there, because this is called the Lord's release. I like that, the Lord's release. And no doubt all these things, just beautiful pictures of how ultimately the Lord's release would come about in a much greater way spiritually, not just financially and having to do with debts and agricultural issues. Ultimately, the Lord's release would find its fulfillment as Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven and provided a, a release from all debts and obligations that we owe because of our sin. And ultimately, when Jesus would come, he would release us from our debt of sin by what he accomplished for us on the cross as he paid off our debt for us. Uh, it tells us this in Colossians chapter 2. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And in the same way here that they went through this process just sort of in their socioeconomic system where they would, it says, release, the creditor would release someone and not require it of them. The Lord's release in Jesus spiritually for us is exactly the same thing. The Lord does not require of us the obligation, the payment, if you would, on our own terms for our sin. But instead, Jesus says... I've paid the debt for you. 
I died on the cross for your sins. I took the punishment and the requirement for your punishment for you. And therefore, you can be released from the eternal judgment that you deserve for your sin. And just such a beautiful thing how ultimately Jesus, having forgiven us, has wiped out, it says, that handwriting of requirements that was against us, having nailed it to the cross for us. And and I love how verse 3 as well says part of this is that they were to learn how to give up their claim to what was owed to them from their brother. So notice, part of this whole practice was also to teach the Israelites how to, as a people, show mercy and forgiveness. Do you see what he says there, verse 3? Part of this was that you were to learn, as a Jew, how to give up, it says, your claim to what was owed to you by your brother. So again, as these kind of things would happen... At times, you would say, hey, look, you genuinely owe me X amount of money. And God says, look, I want you to begin as my people to begin to learn how to at times release people from their debts or their obligations, whether they've created them or not, or however they've created them, consciously or unconsciously, purposely or accidentally, that you would begin to learn how to give up your claim on what is owed you. You may learn how to show mercy and forgiveness. And I think of how in regards to offenses and things that we do and you know someone offends us or hurts us or does something to anger us and we typically do that kind of a thing we typically kind of whether you know consciously or unconsciously or on literal paper or not we kind of begin to make a chart of accounts you know okay well the, yeah <laughs> yeah well, I'm keeping track of that one I mean that's at least 3 days of a bad attitude right there <laughs> I mean yeah, that I mean, you know for example that's at least 3 years of, well, yeah, I say I forgive you, but for the next three years, I'm going to treat you every day like I got something against you. Or I've seen some people, some couples, some married situations where people hold somebody under the thumb for the next 30 years of their lives. And they will just not release them from something that happened that was hurtful. And, 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 and God says, look, I released you from everything. I've released you from every debt and every obligation and every requirement for the things you've done wrong. I want you as my children, as my people, to learn how to give up. Look what it actually To give up your claim. To let it go. Yes, they've offended you. Yes, they've done. But, but let go of it. Let go of it. Release it. Exercise mercy and forgiveness. And God was teaching the people how, again, this was an economical, social thing, but it was also a process of helping them to learn how to show mercy and forgiveness amongst themselves. And it helped remind them, I think, as well, that people were more valuable than money and material things. Yes, they had to, oh, man, but he still owes me this much. It's, God, look, what matters more? People? Or, or, or to have a little more property, a little more material wealth. And it was important because we are selfish human beings. And so often we are so prone. God knows his people and he knew that the people would be prone to be more concerned about their pocketbook or their wallet or how much money or wealth. they. And, and, and God says, no, listen, every seven years, just let it go. Just let it go. Aren't people and their condition and the value of families, isn't that more important than just wealth and possessions and drinking every penny you can out of somebody? And and God wanted to esteem the value of human beings over just money and material wealth. And this protected individuals and families from falling into a cycle of poverty. 
That's what's being described here. Look how he goes on. He says, except when there may be no poor among you. The language there literally could almost be rendered so that there be no poor among you. In other words, as you look at this, you see what God was doing is God's instituting this saying, listen, if the Israelites as a nation would have honored God's design here, God's saying this would have a wonderful productive benefit where it would, in a sense, eradicate the cycle of poverty among the nation, where people wouldn't fall into a cycle of poverty where they just can't get out of it because they just keep getting buried further and further and further and they can never get a step ahead again or they can never get their head back above water again. So God says, so that there may not be poor among you for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care, he says, verse five, all these commandments, which I command you today for the Lord, your God, look at verse six, will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. So another two things we see here, as I said, first of all, is that this plan, God was creating a plan here, verses one through six, and in this chapter we're looking at, to basically safeguard unnecessarily from individuals and families in the nation of Israel from falling into sort of this cycle of poverty that they could not get themselves out of because they just kept getting buried under harder and harder circumstances in that situation. And God said, if you would obey these things and be willing to give up your claim, and if everyone would participate and do this and honor my ways and my voice, God says, this could perhaps eradicate, he's saying, poverty from even taking place among the nation. And he says, because I would bless you. As, and again, you know what people's mentality is, well, wait a minute. If I give up what they owe me and give up what they owe me, well, then how am I going to get ahead? And I got to look out for my... And God's saying to them here, listen, I'll bless you. If you do things my way, I'll take care of you. I'll bless you. In fact, he promises in verse 6 here to the nation of Israel, he's assuring them, if you would, that if they operated in this way, they would become a stable, look at it there, a stable and a prosperous nation. God says, you will lend to many nations... And he says, on top of that, you won't need to borrow money from anybody. And he says, you'll become a stable nation where you'll reign over other nations, but nobody will be able to reign over you because you'll be a stable, strong nation, economically, militarily, and in, in every way. And boy, what an incredible thing to see what God is promising to the nation of Israel and what an interesting parallel to see as well how that can begin to work or digress and fall apart rather quickly for any nation. I mean, look at our own nation. There was a time that our nation was the greatest lender to other nations. And now we are the biggest borrower among all nations because of our lack of Honoring God and honoring God's ways and you see the effects, one of the effects upon that is the detriment it has brought upon our own way that we manage wealth and our economic stewardship and our economy and all those things and how quickly, honestly, sincerely, if you just, you know, re how quickly we went from being a strong, stable, economic 
powerhouse and being the one who would lend to other nations, the United States of America, and now we are the ones who have completely reversed it, and now we are the biggest borrower with some of the biggest debt that exists. And, and how God was telling Israel, listen, keep me in your life, keep me in your nation, and, and you will experience the benefits of that. Push me out of your nation, push me out of your culture, and you will watch everything begin to deteriorate. And boy, we have lived this in our own country quite to the reality. As soon as we began to push God out of our government, out of our educational system, out of our society and say, we don't want anything to do with you other than our money still saying in God we trust. We don't want anything else to do with you. We see the detrimental effects that we're unfortunately suffering nowadays, even in our own culture. Well, verse 70 goes on to say, and if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, he says, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand. The idea is not to be tight fisted, to be open handed, open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient notice for his need, whatever he needs. So now God begins to give instruction how they were to interact among themselves with a heart of generosity. And if there was someone who genuinely had need now be careful here. As God begins to talk about showing generosity to help and to assist the financial need of the poor among them to give them what they need, to not shut your hand from your brother, to have an open-handed, generous spirit in the way that you would supply and maybe lend to them sufficient for what they need. What God is describing here was in essence what we perhaps might use the term the working poor. I don't personally think, and you're free to disagree, that God's primary, in a sense, instruction here is speaking to those who, in a sense, are in the state that they're in, as some are, and I'm not saying all are, but as some are, because of simple negligence and laziness, and those that won't work, that can work. You read the book of Proverbs, you read the New Testament, the Bible is very strong in its exhortations towards the sluggard to those who won't work, the person who's such a sluggard in the book of Proverbs says won't even, won't even lift up their hand to their mouth. You know, too lazy even to put their fork in the plate and lift the food up to their mouth that's actually provided for them right on a plate. Or they say, oh, I, I can't go outside. There's a lion in the streets. So that's why I can't go out there. And, and listen, Paul ultimately says in the New Testament, if someone won't work, he doesn't say if they can't work. He says they won't work, meaning they are capable of working, but they choose not to work for a negligent or a lazy reason, no matter how they may cloak it or cover it up. But he, there are people who legitimately can't work. I don't, people who can't work, we should help. We should be gracious to them. We should support them and assist them and come. We should be generous to them. But God also says if someone won't work, the New Testament says, then they shouldn't eat. The idea is that you know they should, in a sense, struggle or struggle to the sense where their own struggle makes them be motivated to say, maybe I should go do what everybody else does and get a job because I'm kind of getting hungry here. And then they begin to learn. So listen, there is a time when genuinely helping someone who is struggling, look, there are people, let's be very honest, there are people, and in our own country, who are working hard, and they are diligent workers, and no matter how hard they work, and how many hours they put in their job, the, the wages that they're earning, and then the you know bills that they have, and then the 
you know, the, the transmission breaks down and then Junior breaks his arm and then just one thing compounds. They just cannot seem to get ahead. But they're working hard. And they're doing everything they can to manage what little limited resources they have to manage them well. And they're honoring God and they're, and they're using their money to the best of their ability. But yet they're still struggling and they're lacking and they have needs. And God says, you know what? Those people we should be gracious towards. We should have an open hand towards them. We should be willing to come alongside of them and, and do what we can to assist them. He says here, don't shut your hand towards them. Have an open hand. There are people that need help. And God wants us to help and to be gracious and to be generous. But by the same token, there is a time where we may think we're helping certain people by just giving them money or giving them resources and all we may be doing is actually hindering them because we're just enabling them to stay in a cycle that God does not want them in. And so we have to use discretion here. Again, we must take the Bible in context and not just think this is a blanket statement that means that we should just go out and everybody who seems to have some indication of poverty, you know, we should just begin to just unload the coffers of the church in our pockets and everything and just begin to start helping everybody financially. Listen, that, that sounds generous, but that may not always be very productive. It may not always be very wise. And I would go so far as to say this, and perhaps it will offend, but won't be the first time. I think sometimes, as Christians and as the church, we at times overlook taking care of our own family and the quote-unquote working poor and those who are genuinely trying to honor God and are struggling because we're so focused on wanting to help certain individuals and sometimes maybe we're helping individuals out in the world and society that all they're doing is just saying, got some more out of you. Thanks. See ya. Yo, yo, wait, go ahead, tell me your Jesus thing. As long as you're going to give me something afterwards. And I think we need to be careful. I think sometimes as Christians and as the church, we can be a little naive. Listen, I'm not saying we should not minister to those in poverty and the poor in our culture. That is not what I'm saying. But I think sometimes we need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves and, and use stewardship and understand the heart of God and that there's a balance in these things. And we want to be sensitive to the Spirit of God leading us and using wisdom and, and helping in the ways that we ought to help. So God here is giving this exhortation. Be compassionate, be merciful, he says, to the poor, to the struggling, the less fortunate among you. He says, verse 9, Beware lest there be any wicked thought in your heart. Look how God knows humanity, saying, The seventh year, that year of release, remember where you release the debts, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it become a sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him for this thing. The Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all you do and what you put your hand to. So God addresses the reality of how he knows human nature is that, you know, let's say a situation arises and, you know, I, I fall behind in my, you know, situation with my you know circumstances i have a bad harvest or a bad crop and so i have to go to somebody and i say look you know i don't have anything to pay you with but i'll pay you with my labor i, I will work your fields to pay off my debt 
and, and do what I can to repay you through my labor because I don't have a dollar to give to you and I know that I have a debt and an obligation that I have to settle. And, and he's, God says, you know, perhaps you could help them or somebody else comes to you and just expresses a genuine need and says, hey, could you just help me out? I'm going through a tough time. I need a little assistance to just take care of something. And you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I, if I make this deal, wait, what, what, what is it? This is, this is the fifth year already. Oh, man. And I'm not going to be able to get 25% and get back my right return. And Oh, man, I, in, in a year and a half, before that year release thing, I'm not going to be able to get an adequate return. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I don't got nothing to borrow. Go see John. He's got a little more money than I do. And you try and blow that off there because you're just thinking, oh, man, you know, it's not going to work out the dollars and cents. And so this kind of you know, wicked, selfish intention because you're trying to think about, again, the dollar signs rather than what's more important, money? Or people. And look what God says there in verse 10. He's even so gracious, even though he knows our selfish, greedy, sinful nature. He says to verse 10, I, I mean, it's so compassionate to even us in our wicked hearts sometimes. He says, you shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved, concerned. Oh, no, I'm going to fall behind myself now. Because he says, for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. You see what God's doing? He's saying, look, you never have to worry about being generous. That's what God's saying there in verse 10. He says, look, you don't ever have to worry about suffering personally if you're trying to sincerely be generous to help someone out when you're able to help them. And that's a legitimate concern because sometimes we think, man, I know I should help this person and I know I'm able to help them right now in this situation but if I help them oh stink what if I fall behind or what if I don't have enough to pay my bills or this or that listen the Bible tells us this in Proverbs 11 it says there is one who scatters gives away yet increases the more there's one who withholds more than is right but it leads to poverty the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. Again, the Bible says that oftentimes there's this paradoxical thing that works in the spirit that when we're generous and giving that we can't outgive God and that when we choose to trust God and do what's right in a given situation, God honors that. He says there, verse 10, listen, don't be grieved or worried. He says the Lord will bless you. He'll bless you. You bless someone else and he'll bless you in return. There are times when you can give away more than you should and God will completely give back and sometimes more than that in return. Then there are other times where we may be greedy or selfish or fearful and so we hold back and we don't help when we could and actually it causes us to be set back even further because we're trying to hoard and to hold back and not trust the Lord. Listen, I'll give you a perfect personal example of this very reality. There was a time not too long ago, a number of months back, where I was asked, and it's just a simple example, but show you how the Lord performs these things and play them out. I was asked to go and to guest speak at a, another church somewhere, and as often you know, the case, I went and spoke at this church, and afterwards they uh, gave me an, an honorarium check for like $150 for going there and guest speaking. While I was there at that church, I was talking to somebody that was a part of the fellowship there. And, you know, they were just kind of explaining the situation. He's you know, he'd just gotten laid off of work and he was expressing concern because he hurt his back and he wasn't able to get enough days. So as I was driving home, I thought to myself, man, I just, that guy needs it more than I do. And so when I got back home, I 
you know, prayed about it a little bit and kind of, you know, thought it through and talked to Trish. And so, again, what I did was I retained about $60 of that $150 to cover because I had to travel out of state where I went to uh, to cover my gas and my tolls and my, you know, dinner for the trip or whatever. I just kind of said, okay, this is about how much I spent personally of my own money, gas and tolls and the food to go there. And I thought, you know, it says I spent about $60, but the other 90 of that, he needs it more than I do. So I sent it back to the church and I said, look, give this anonymously to this family. They need it more than I do. Literally a week later, somebody gave to our family a $100 grocery card. And it was one of those things where, again, just one of those silly little things where you go, I remember, I remember driving home in my car and thinking to myself, wow, Lord, gave away 90, you gave me 100 I'm going to try that more often. <laughs> Anybody else need some guest speaking? <laughs> now, that's greedy. That shows you that I'm a sinful wretch. You know, you should never, that's, that's not what this is. It's not investing. You know, Sow your seed and you get 100 back in rinse. That's not, that's not how that works. But it was one of those things, seriously, where, where you go, man, you know, but you think to yourself, this person needs it more than I do and how God just honors that. And how it was like he honored that within a week's time, just this little indication of one of those kind of, you know, attaboy, and I saw that, and I honor that, and you can't ever outgive me, and thank you for listening to me, uh, and, and thank you for doing that. You know, the Bible says, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. And it was so awesome to just see that play. I don't share that as a personal glory war story. That's not why I'm sharing that. I'm just sharing that to tell you, look, I've seen that reality play out in my life, in my family's Christian life, so many times, so many times. And the Lord does that. The Lord does that. So just this beautiful encouragement. Listen, you're never going to put yourself backwards by just being generous to help. God will always honor that. He refreshes and blesses those who are helpful and generous. So if you see a need, don't be afraid to help and to assist people on occasion if God puts it before you. Verse 11, he says, For the poor will never cease from the land. So again, God's heart, we saw back in verse 4, is that there would not be poor among the people if they operated the way that God told them to with a year of release. But God knows human nature and he knew that the Israelites would not follow completely the way that he told them to operate. And as a result, there would always be poor in the land, that there would never cease to be poor. Interesting, in the New Testament, even Jesus himself says in the Gospels, the poor you will have with you always. He said, but you won't have me with you always. When they got upset that money was spent, when that spikenard was broken and Jesus was anointed with that very expensive, fragrant perfume, anointed for his burial, and they got all upset. This could have been sold for a year's worth of wages, and we could have went and helped the poor. And Jesus said, the poor you're going to have with you always, but I won't be with you always. And he appreciated that in the moment he was being honored. But again, Jesus making that same declaration in the New Testament. Listen, I tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not a lack of wealth on the earth. The problem is just man is greedy and selfish and we have never been able to govern ourselves. If you statistically look at the amount of wealth that exists on this planet and you were to spread it in a way that was you know, even close to equal. Listen, I'm not a socialist. Don't, don't, don't get the wrong impression here. By all means, no Bernie for me. 
just to, that's not the most political I'm going to get, okay? Uh, but by all means, but it's not a lack of wealth. It's a lack of our willingness to not be so greedy and selfish that we, and that's the problem. So because of that, until Jesus comes, there will always be those who are poor and struggling among us. It's unfortunate, but it's just a part of the, the, the curse and fallen humanity. It says, therefore, I command you saying, you shall open, verse 11, your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and to your needy in your land. And he says, verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you six years. So again, this idea of where you sell yourself as a indentured servant to labor some, for someone because you fall into a financial difficulty. If they serve you for six years, in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. So again, if I fall into a, a crisis financially and I said I have nothing to pay, but I'll be an indentured servant, you could work for six years for someone, but that was it. After the seventh year, you needed to let them go free. You needed to give them an opportunity to restart. You weren't to hold them under that obligation for more than six years. You were giving them a chance after the six years to work off their debt, to then have the freedom and the opportunity by grace to restart and to try and get ahead again and to be able to reestablish themselves. In fact, notice how generous they were to be. He says, in the seventh year, you let the slave go free, verse 13, and when you send him away from you, send him free, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, your wine press, and from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. So as they went out, as you released your servant, God says, when they go out, don't just send them out empty-handed. Why? Because if they just go out empty-handed with nothing to start with, what are they going to do? They're going to struggle and fall right back into the same cycle that they came into. So again, God is instituting this not only just to be gracious and loving and generous, but it's the wisdom of God again saying, listen, we want to break the cycle here. We don't want to see people stuck in, in a situation where they just keep falling behind. So God says, look, you're in a stable situation. When you send them out, send them out with a generous start, a, you know, a, in a sense, a, you know, a, a severance package. The idea here is almost so they have a soft landing. He says, take some of your crops and some of your fruit and some of what you have from your vineyards and supply them liberally, he says, verse 14. Bless them with some of what God has blessed you with. And he says, if you're looking for a motivation to do it, he says, just think about where God has brought you from. Because he says, where were you? He says, verse 15, remember, you were in the land of Egypt and you were once a slave yourself. And when they left Egypt, how did they leave? They left Egypt as slaves and they were left empty handed with nothing. But what did God do? God touched, remember, God touched the heart of the Egyptians. And as they were going out, God touched the heart of these people. And it's almost like he gave them back due wages for all the years they worked there. And they went out with something in their hands to start with because all the Egyptians gave them contributions as they were leaving the land. So God says, remember how someone has done such for you and remember that I'm the one who has blessed you. And so therefore just share of what has been given to you as you remember the source who it was from, from God himself. And he says, verse 16, if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. Then you shall take an all 
a metal which looks like kind of a, a pointed ice pick that you would use to chip away at things, take an awl, thrust it through his ear to the door. So there's the ancient form of ear piercing, uh, very hygienic and quite painful. Uh, and he shall be your servant forever and also your female servant you shall do likewise. So here verse 16 and 17, God institutes a way whereby if you were working for someone as an indentured servant for six years and the seventh year came around and your master said to you, look, uh, according to the law of God, you're free to go. Uh, you're released from any obligations. You're released from all your debts. You're released from your service with me. You may go, you may be free, and here's what you need to get, and, and followed all that, that there may be occasions where, let's say, someone had developed a relationship with their master, and maybe they had a really good master. And maybe as a result of serving that master, they met a wife, and they had developed you know, a, a family, and they had a really good experience because they had a very good, loving, wonderful master. And, and it went initially from serving because they had to to over time, they weren't serving their master because they needed to. They started serving their master because they loved him. And they really enjoyed serving that master. And so they said, you're a good master. I don't want to leave you. I want to keep serving you. I don't want to serve you because I have to. I want to serve you because I enjoy serving you. And I want to serve you willingly. Well, what could be done is if that was the case and you wanted to be a lifelong servant of that master, they would take you to the door and they would put the all through your ear, in a sense, pierce your ear. And interesting, this is where the term today comes from, earmarked. It's from right there. This is ancient ear pier. And that day, if you wore an earring, it meant something. It wasn't just a style fashion. It, was, it meant something. It meant that you were a willful servant and that you had forsaken all of your rights. Not because you had to or you were obligated, but that you had willingly said, I don't want my own rights anymore. I don't want to be in charge anymore. I want to be fully submitted and I want to be ruled over in every way by this master because I trust him and he's a good master and I am doing better serving him than being in charge and serving myself and, and, and ruling over my own life. And so therefore, I choose to give up all my freedoms and rights and I want to serve this master and let him rule over me for the rest of my life. And of course, in the New Testament, this becomes a beautiful picture of what Paul ultimately refers to himself as in the New Testament when he calls himself a bondservant of Christ. This is the same idea where, in a sense, Paul said, listen, I don't serve Jesus because I have to. I don't serve Jesus because it's an obligation. Oh, I've got to serve Jesus. If you don't serve Jesus, you go to the fire hole. Gotta serve Jesus. Oh, I, gotta, I better serve Jesus because I don't want to burn in hell forever. I, it, it, Paul says, no, I don't serve Jesus that way. He says, I serve Jesus because he's a good master. And listen, the key to life, ladies and gentlemen, is simply just finding the right master. Because something masters everybody. Everybody serves something. Everybody serves someone. And a lot of people are really miserable because they're serving the wrong master. Whether they're serving substance abuse or serving the need to have acceptance of people around them or serving success or money or self-serving, serving themselves, whatever it may be. Listen, the key to life is finding the right master. And the right master, the best master is Jesus because he's a good master. 
and as you serve him and give up your life to him, that is where true pleasure and enjoyment comes from. And Jesus always wants to take us from that place of maybe at first we do serve him because we kind of sense the fear of God and the fear of hell. And maybe initially we say, yes, I am a desperate, needy individual. Lord, I, I need to serve you. And we start out. But listen, ultimately, Jesus wants to bring us to a place where we come to that place of full surrender where we say, Lord, I don't even want my own rights anymore. I don't even want to call the shots anymore. <laughs> Lord, I want you to just tell me what to do every day, all day, and in every way because that's the best place in the world to be. Lord, just I, I, I'm a willing servant. I choose to be that willing servant. And what a beautiful thing when the Lord brings us to that place. Well, let's finish up the chapter here. He says, And it shall not seem hard to you when you send him away from you, for he's been worth a double hired servant and serving you six years. So again, if it was hard to let someone go, God says, don't let that hold you back again, for the Lord will bless you in all that you do. And all the firstborn males that come of your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So again, as God's speaking of what they would bring to him, the firstborn, remember, was to be set aside for God. And this shows you that God knows human nature again. He says, you shall do no work with the firstborn, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. Again, the firstborn belonged to God, but God says, don't shear the firstborn before you bring it to me. The firstborn of everything belonged to God. Why? Because God knows here's humanity. Yeah, I know that sheep is the firstborn and it really belongs to God, but man, I could just get one good coat of wool out of that thing. And, and, and I mean, winter is coming. Maybe I could just shear that thing one time before I bring it to the tabernacle and give it. Again, God just knows... You know, the way we work is humanity. He says, verse 20, You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord your God chooses. Again, the sacrificial meal is a part of their offering to God as fellowship with Him. Verse 21, But if there is a defect in it, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice that to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The clean and the unclean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour on the ground like water. So if they were to eat it as a regular meal, it didn't matter if the animal had defects, if they were clean or unclean, as long as they bled the animal properly, as we've talked about before, that was okay. But if they were to offer it as a sacrifice to God, as a part of their worship, as we've seen many times before, God says there, verse 21, if there was a defect in it, if it was lame or blind or had any serious defect or blemish or problem, they could not give that to God. Again, for two reasons. First of all, because God does not want our cast-offs. Let me put it this way. God does not like leftovers any more than you do. And yet, naturally, our human nature is we tend to have this very selfish bent whereby it's kind of, yeah, I mean, are we, I'll be first, we don't need this couch anymore. We should go up to Raymore and Flanagan and get ourselves a new couch. I wonder if the church needs the old couch. No, I'm not saying I don't want your couch. Do you understand the mindset in that? See, that's human nature. Why? I don't need this anymore. It's a cast off now. So give this to God and let's go get the nice new thing for ourselves. It's just human nature. We're so quick to want to give God our leftovers. 
our cast off, whether, again, whether it's with our time, whether it's with our energy, whether it's with our property, our possessions, when the reality is God deserves my best. He deserves my best. That should be the heart of love and gratitude and appreciation we have towards God. And not only is it just that God deserves our best, of course, as we talked about before, this is all a picture and a type of what Jesus was. God gave us his best. Jesus was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, no defects in Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Unlike us, who are defective and sinful and fractured and broken, God gave the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus never sinned. He never failed. He had no spot or blemish, and he became the ultimate sacrifice on the cross as he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven so that we could go to heaven through a relationship with him. The Bible says that God, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, how much shall he not also freely give us all things? I want you to hear that term, that God did not spare his own son. To spare means to hold back. The idea is that when God gave to us to make sure that we could be forgiven of sin and have assurance that we're going to go to heaven when we die and have a relationship with God that's personal and real, not just a religious experience, God didn't spare anything to make sure that was available to us by faith and faith alone. God said, I'm not going to spare. I'm going to give my absolute best that our gratitude would be stirred and that we would respond in the same way towards him. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.